0: LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Let's go to Titus chapter 2. We're in a title and study the church, a study entitled the church. That's not a good precursor for the sermon, I'm sure. And we we talked about the first several weeks leadership, and now we're going to transition into discipleship, the second major component of the church as we're looking at the book of Titus. And so I want to read for us the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and then we'll dive into the message. Paul writes, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of His Word today. As we move into this next area or this next chapter, this next phase of the book of Titus, and it's hard to call it a phase because really and truly it's only three chapters long, so there aren't many phases in the book of Titus. But Paul makes a distinctive shift from the leadership of the church and who they are and what kind of people they should be and what they should be about doing to uh, uh, draw a stark contrast for us here. And, and it brings us to look at what I'm calling the second area or the second phase of of The church that Paul teaches on in Titus. And that is a move from leadership, the first area of the church, to discipleship. Discipleship. And the reason that I love to preach on discipleship but become very apprehensive about it is because it is such a beast of misunderstanding among Christians in the church. Everyone already has their understanding of what discipleship means. And so you have to deconstruct before you can construct. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time deconstructing today. I've done that before and and I'm hoping just to build off of that. But I'm going to spend time beginning a construct of discipleship today. And as I've done with uh, one of my leadership sermons, this sermon won't finish today. It'll only get about halfway through and I'll finish next week. That's the way I keep you coming back. If you want the whole story, you'll have to come back next week and I'll finish. Okay, But I want to begin this way. I want to begin talking about community. Because in Titus 2, we consider discipleship and spiritual growth in the church. That's what we're talking about in these first 10 verses is really the ethos of spiritual growth. And as I look in the world today, and as I hear in the world today, as I uh, would propose you likely do too, everyone offers community. Do they not? At work, our office, we're just a community, right? At play, right? Our recreation, we're, we're a community. You can go shopping, and they want to build community with you while you're in their store. Why? Because it is a commodity that is absent from our life. Wherever you go, everyone's trying to build community today. They want you to feel connected to who they are. They want you to feel uh, connected to what they're doing or, or most importantly what they're selling. And so here's statements that you often hear. We really connect. We have great community. And most often when they want to express the deepest level of community, they say this, we're like family. We're like family. Community in the world, no matter where it's found, is always determined by external commonalities. And in a world where relationships are built by a click, and intimacy is shared through a unique emoticon, Community, so ironically, has become our highest commodity. It's what we most desire and long for. So there's no wonder why so many get confused with what it means when the church talks about community. And then when the church demands more from a person uh, because of that or to build that community, then they become hesitant. Wait a minute, The Gap didn't demand this of me the other day when I was shopping. Let you know how aged I am. Actually, I'm pre-GAP. I'm not even GAP, you know. They're just just hesitant and resistant to give it. Wait, you just tell me what the price tag is and I'll decide if the sale is enough for me to want it. If you relate in the church, though, the way that you relate anywhere else in your life, then, then you may have everything else working for you. But what you have at what you call church is not what the Bible teaches the church to be. And that's so important for us just to put down our defenses and to listen and understand. See friends, the church is not like a family. We are family. All my brothers and sisters and me Because I know you heard it. That's why I'm holding my hands behind my back. I love funk and R&B and I just want to dance right now. There's a big difference between being like family and being family. And one of the biggest differences is that when you are like family... You can't show all your fallacies, right? Because when you're like family, and, but you show your fallacies, you don't like the family anymore. But when you are family, you can't hide your fallacies. And you still have to like the family, right? The church is not a community of people like me, nor a community for me, but a community for Jesus, And the church is not determined by external commonality, but redeemed identity. And that's what makes us family. Yes, we are blood kin, if I can use an Arkansas vernacular. We are spirit related. Jesus' blood and Holy Spirit's abiding presence within us makes us family. All with one heavenly Father. And one faithful big brother. Therefore, community in the church is about building spirit unity with one another. Through communion with God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the church holds holds a distinguishing uh, rhythm in the New Testament. And that rhythm includes this. It is the teaching plus the worship plus the fellowship plus the witness. That's what Acts 2 says. 42-47 Forty two, forty seven, 47 and the end of Acts chapter 4 teaches us that these elements provide what we call the rhythm of Christian mission. And, and so we learn from the New Testament that God's intention is for believers to be disciples in the midst of these committed communities of believers that we now call churches. And we know from Jesus' own words that the command to make disciples forms our principal command. It is our commissioned purpose as the people of God. It's our family's purpose is to make disciples, to grow the family. The, the church's mission in the world is to take those who are not by the very flow of those who are and in their growth and maturity make those who are not become like Christ. Not like us. That's the church being First when the gospel's first, we take others who are not like Christ to bring them into our fold to make them like him. You see, discipleship is the rhythm of all of life in the church. It's not something we do that is separate from everything else that we are, but it's who we are. It's who we are. Discipleship means working out, or, or rather, bringing to reality, bringing to full fruition the sanctification that God is working within. It's what discipleship's all about. It's just it's it is the reality of sanctification. It is working to the, uh, uh, the to the extreme externalities of our life, uh, of the intensity of what God is working at the inner core of who we are. And discipleship isn't discipleship until the discipled become disciple makers. I'm going to repeat that because I need to hear it again. And maybe it will benefit you a second time as well. Discipleship isn't discipleship until the discipled become disciple makers. You can't be a disciple and not be making disciples according to the Bible. And see, that's where we really need to get real with what the scripture teaches us and come into an understanding of what God wants to do in us. The church family is a community where disciple making cultivates growth and maturity in every Christian so that's what I want us to look at today. Discipleship, it streams in the church through mission to grow and mature God's people as the church. This discipleship is the defining ethos of our spiritual growth It's like streaming music that we've become so common with today. Instead of stopping and having to swap out the 8-track or the cassette or the CD. And, and even now we don't even have to go back on and flip through our iPod. We can just stream it now. And we can kind of create our own uh, identity for what what kind of music that we prefer. And it'll just go find songs and stream it all day long and just bring it into our life. And streaming music becomes a common practice. I would say discipleship becomes a stream for us as Christians. It fills the space of our time. It creates a rhythm for our day. and, And it often dictates the pace and the intensity with which we will grow in our own life. Just like the music does that plays in the background as we go about our day. You see, an ethos of discipleship streams through the church in order to grow and to mature God's people in everything we do. And so discipleship means that every activity in the church aims to grow and mature God's people as the church. There is nothing that we do from unlocking the doors to serving coffee to shaking hands and welcoming one another, to singing praises, to prayer, to uh, uh, sermonizing and listening to sermons, to studying and dialoguing in community groups, to teaching a lesson in children's or student classes. There is nothing we do, friends, to cleaning the building up, to whatever we engage in as a family, discipleship streams through that. And it sets the pace and the rhythm and sometimes the intensity and the depth with which we operate because everything about what we're doing either makes us more like Jesus or distracts us from becoming more like him. So I want us to talk about discipleship for a couple of weeks. Three actually. And I want us to begin by looking at four characteristics in these verses that mark an ethos of discipleship to grow the church. We're only going to look at the first two of these characteristics today. But I hope they encourage you and challenge you. The first characteristic I want you to see is this. That discipleship sources from the teaching and the preaching of sound doctrine. Discipleship sources from the teaching and the preaching of sound doctrine. So often in the church life. And listen, I I speak uh, as a word of testimony. Maybe you're not familiar with this. But I've been in the church all my life. And I can attest to this. That so much of discipleship is actually removed from the preaching and teaching of sound doctrine. It's just activity of discussion too often. But what does he say in verse 1 of chapter 2? But, but as for you, what what do you mean? But as for you, well, he's drawing a stark contrast from what he just described in the last five verses of chapter 1. And what did he describe? He described false teachers that were actually purging the church and hurting the church by misleading people through their false teaching. And he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine teach what accords with sound doctrine why because it is streaming discipleship through the people of God and so he commands Titus to teach this all teaching in the church must faithfully align with the biblical truths through the gospel of Jesus Christ that's what Paul is telling Titus Teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, whatever you teach, make sure that it is aligning with the sound doctrine. What is that sound doctrine? It's the truth of God's word through the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you teach something that Jesus doesn't become the hero of or Jesus doesn't uh, uh, sit at the center of, you're not teaching sound doctrine. You may be teaching the Bible, but if you miss Jesus as the center of that, you've missed the very purpose of what the Bible's saying. I'll come back to that in a moment when we talk about truth and love. But false teachers, they work to make people depend upon them. And, and so often in our day, as we talked about last week, we see this happen. People get up and they hold God's word and they start with God's word, but they don't end with God, right? They don't center on Jesus and what they do is make it about you and what you can do to improve your life. Or they, they focus on their own complex algorithms and they make Christianity some kind of rhythm that they have to provide. And you go, that works perfectly, but there's no way I'm going to ever remember that. I just need to keep listening to you and you'll work it out for me. And so they, they point people to themselves instead of to Jesus. Jesus. You see, sound doctrine equips the church to disciple one another instead of depending on one person or any group of persons. Sound doctrine is taught in the church to depend upon Jesus. And yes, it is taught through other people. And and we depend upon one another, but not as the final authority or the ultimate source, but rather as the directors that are pointing one another to Jesus. Discipleship, friends, begins with preaching and teaching sound doctrine, gospel truths in the church. Sound doctrine just simply means teaching what aligns with God's word, as I said. And this is what Paul commends Titus. He also commends Timothy to be a man who rightly handles the word of truth. And he later warns that there will be a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching, but will rather choose teaching that suits their own passions Tell me something I want to hear, pastor. You know why it's so easy for propagators of the word of God to do that? Because we're fighting our own passions. And passions really aren't that unique. So I could talk about mine and very likely there's going to be a strong crowd of people that love to hear about it too. But that's not what he has commended us to preach, rather to preach God's word. When God's word is rightly handled, God's people are equipped to handle life. They don't need to depend on one person, but rather depending on Christ. Other people serve a very explicit purpose to encourage that in their life. And what sound doctrine does is sound doctrine processes the measure and the understanding of all things according to God's word. And so often people come to the Bible and they go, well, this this book doesn't address the things that I'm experiencing in my life. And, and the reason it doesn't is because we start with us. But when we start with the Word of God, there is nothing in our life that God's Word does not address for us and does not lead us through, not only by the words and by the truth of God's Word, but by the Spirit inhabiting us and leading us. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you heard someone say, we don't need to bother with doctrine, we just need to love God and love others? Mm. Please do not say that around me. I do not think that I should be held responsible for what happens if you do. And I'm not threatening you. I'm just warning you. That's just a... I'm joking with you if you don't know me. Kind of, but not really. God, do you feel the tension here right now? I do. I feel it. Or maybe this. I just want a church... That doesn't get all bogged down in doctrine, but just teaches practical lessons. Friends, I don't believe people don't want sound doctrine. I, I think they don't want boring doctrine. And, and I think it's a sin to preach doctrine in a boring manner. And all of us as preachers are guilty of that at some point in time or another. There's no doubt. But we are learning, hopefully... To continue to labor in such a way that encourages people to deepen their understanding and to deepen their affections in Jesus Christ through the teaching of God's Word. People want to know that God can relate to their life. Do you not? Did you not come here today with some semblance of desire in you that says, I want to know today? whether you're completely convinced before you arrived or completely unconvinced even at this moment. I want to know today, can God relate to me? And do you know what God wants you to know by coming and listening to His Word preached? is that not only can he relate to you, but in relating to you, that he loves you, and he perfectly understands everything about you, because he created you in such a way to have a relationship with him. And that's what sound doctrine is all about. It's all about teaching how God in His story created you to know Him and He loves you and He's pursuing this relationship with you, but sin has separated you from Him and how He has sent His Son Jesus to conquer and to crush sin so that you can be reconciled to Him, as Pastor Chris read in the devotional reading of Scripture this morning. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we might become the right of God. That's what sound doctrine is all about. And if sound doctrine isn't about that, it's not sound. It's just doctrine. And it's surely not according to God's word. Sound doctrine applies the truth of God's word to the reality of life in order to shape God's people around Jesus Christ. Can I just give you five benefits of Sound Doctrine for the Church, and and I know I'm kind of talking in a high way today at a 20,000-foot perspective of the church. I I get that, but but it's important for us to understand because hopefully what you'll walk away with with some of this today is understanding why the church is so valuable for you. Not the church as an organization or the church as an entity, but the church as a people. And that means why the people next to you and in front of you and behind you are critical for your faithfulness in in walking with Jesus Christ. Let me give you quickly six benefits of sound doctrine for the church. First of all is you learn to faithfully read and teach and understand the Bible. I mean that's the ultimate goal of reading and studying the Bible is to love God more but to become more full of God's love for you. And sound doctrine enables you to read every story of the Bible as the Bible's one story, the gospel. Faithfully reading and teaching the Bible is the first benefit of sound doctrine for the church. The second benefit that I offer to you today is the benefit of holiness. This vision that God has for us, that he does in us and for us in Jesus Christ. Every biblical doctrine embraced by the mind and applied to the heart conforms us to the character and to the will of God. And sound doctrine is the central meaning by which Christians grow, or excuse me, the central means by which Christians grow in holiness. And holiness is always the goal of sound doctrine. Listen, a a Christian who wants nothing to do with sound doctrine is like a medical doctor who wants nothing to do and never wants to be bothered with science, with medicine, or with people. That makes a bad medical doctor, doesn't it? It makes a bad Christian to not want anything to do with sound doctrine because that is the means through which we grow in holiness, in the likeness of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The third benefit for the church is love. Sound doctrine grows love for God and a love for others in the truth. And friends, listen, without truth, love is reduced to self-gratification that indebts others to you. And without love, truth is reduced to self-justification that makes others less than you. Sound doctrine marries love and truth and never lets them depart. The fourth benefit of sound doctrine for the church is one of unity. Sound doctrine establishes the church's unity in the gospel of God's word and not just in man's opinion. The, sixth, uh, the fifth benefit is worship. Sound doctrine is for worship like, like wood is for a fire. It's fuel because sound doctrine moves us to worship by beholding the true glory, character, and goodness uh, and, and hearing of the grace of God by proclaiming a love that is so great that we're moved, that we're stirred, and that we're captured in worship. And, and what sound doctrine does is it teaches us to delight in God because it shows us how delightful God is The sixth benefit is the benefit of witness. Do you remember the rhythms, uh, the elements of the rhythm of the church that I mentioned? Sound doctrine. That's why it's the stream of discipleship flowing through the church. Witness is the sixth benefit. Sound doctrine demonstrates how God's truth transforms the reality of life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it frames a worldview for us that allows us not to lose heart, but rather to hold out hope in Jesus to others in the world. And so Paul tells Titus, That sound doctrine is what he is to be teaching to the church because it is the very core, it's the essence of that stream of discipleship that is flowing through the church. And and, and then he says to to this in verses 7 and 8 when she kind of refers back to Titus but also referring to other young men in the church. He says that that for these young men and, and specifically for these pastors that sound teaching begins before the sermon. Maybe you've heard it said pastors must preach, or excuse me, pastors, to me peas. pastors must practice what they preach. And that's a true statement, but it's wrongly ordered. Because it is more correct and biblical that before a man stands to preach, he must live in the practice of what he dares to proclaim. Charles Spurgeon said the labor of the Christian ministry is well performed in exact proportion to the vigor of our renewed nature. And our work is only well done when it is well within ourselves. Friends, a pastor doesn't need to be measured as perfect, but he must demonstrate a faithfulness in godliness, an understanding of and a long-suffering in the realities of life's struggle and a dependence on gospel power as sufficient but also as sweet for savoring. And you know what you call that? Sound doctrine. That's what it's all about. And so your leaders must model sound teaching in their integrity, and in their dignity, and in their sound speech. We'll talk about that more next week. But sound doctrine teaches biblical life application, and it trains us in how to live it out daily through the gospel. You see, sound doctrine frames all conversations for spiritual growth as the center of all Christian discipleship. So discipleship that marks a faithful church sources from sound doctrine. That's the first characteristic I want you to see that we should be marked by in faithful discipleship. The second one is this. Discipleship demands relationships with people that point you to godliness. Discipleship demands relationships with people that point you to godliness. Paul identifies four categories of people that intentionally engage one another in relationships for discipleship. He uses two qualifiers, older and younger, and two people, men and women. Now then, I dare not set the parameters on the qualifier, but I'm happy to establish The men and women part. The older and younger part, I'm going to leave that to your interpretation. Uh, I think he gives us some guidelines for that for sure. But don't you find it interesting, as I do, that these categories are often the most divided in our culture? The older and the younger. Set opposed to each other. But I think this critical point needs to be preached in our world today. The gospel leads us to get over personal and generational pride to move forward in spiritual growth that the gospel leads us to get over personal and generational pride in order to move forward in spiritual growth. You you know, what we do in the church so often today sounds something like um, a a family getting ready to have a meal, but the kids say, you know, I'm not going to be there because the parents show up every time we have a family meal. I just can't stand what they like to eat. But the church, remember what I said, is... Family and One of our biggest challenges is that so often everyone we surround our life with looks like me, talks like me, acts like me, laughs at the same things I laugh at and struggles with the same things I struggle with. And friends, when this is true of you, it means your biggest problem with spiritual growth is that your community is about you. Single generation community poses a great threat to the church. Because the defining voice speaks with an absence of generational wisdom. There's a reason you don't leave the kids at home alone when they're too young, right? You want the home to be there when you get there. But I also want to point out the errr of young and old. There's a er factor, a relative factor to this directive, to this characteristic. Old and young, it doesn't have to have an explicit start or stop point. It denotes a distinct difference though. We need people not like us, generationally distinct from us, that will challenge us, that will stretch us, that will counsel us, and that will encourage us to do what? To grow up. And we need those with whom we are laboring to invest for the same purpose. In other words, we need people that aren't like us, not just that are pouring into us, but that we are investing in as way. This is not the sum total of what Paul is saying here, but everything he says here, he frames in this way. It's the last thing that I'm going to pound on today, but I'm going to pound on it. And then next week, I'm going to take it and unpack for what needs to be said in the conversations between older and younger. But in a church like ours, who for years we had to pray for more older people to come to help us. Because we're a bunch of children at home by ourselves. And the babysitters that are with us are few. And they can't be getting anything other than weary. We had the staff over Friday night. And my parents were here this weekend. And when the staff left, my mom and dad together said to us, Wow, y'all are the oldest people on your staff. And thank you, Mom. We need people not like us. The, the one thing I most want to tell Christians today, especially church planters and, and leaders in the church, re- regarding the church life, is not everything they want to do is wrong and not everything you do or want to do is Right? Why are we so set against each other across generational lines? Every generation needs to remember this that biblical gener- discipleship demands multi generational relationships. And if they're not in the church, that church is going to be suffering from a unigenerational voice that is absent of the wisdom of God. I'm not saying God can't use that and can't overcome that. And some churches begin like that. And praise God, those churches that often begin very young grow up because God brings more in. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. But even this week, I heard about a pastor who would recently been run out of his church. And many of the older people in the church said, good, now that he's gone, can we get the choir robes back on, put the choir back in the loft, and get back to the good old days? The days behind you are never better than the days before you in the gospel. They are sweet and they are good, and we need to stand on them, but we never need to return to them. That's always idolatry. The basic spiritual growth principle means we are always looking forward and back to people. To be made, to be challenged, to grow as we are laboring to be part of making, growing another in Jesus' image. I remember my grandfather's counsel to me. I wanted to propose to Christian, to Christian, to Kristen. I know my wife's name. I do know my wife's name. I wanted to propose to her, but I was unsure how I could afford marriage. And my papa offered this counselor. He laughed at me in that deep, booming voice. He said, boy, you ain't going to never have enough money to be married. (laughs) He was so right. I mean, that's just been so true. And that's not my wife's fault, just so you know. And if you know us, you know that's not my wife's fault. But listen, let me me just give you a couple of advantages of multi-generational discipleship. You need someone outside your age and stage of life to tell you two things and to ask you one question. The first thing they need to tell you is a revisit of last week. They need to tell you to deal with it. They need to tell you to stop it. They need to tell you to stop getting hung up by it. It's not the big deal you're making of it. These, these are all forms of biblical rebuke. You need someone outside your stage of life that can rebuke you. And you go, don't they have to be older? No, sometimes it's the little kids. They go, why don't you just pray about it? You know, that's what you teach us. Oh, yeah, that's right. Let's do that right now. Right? I mean, that, you know, we, sometimes we think of rebuke as beating our head against a brick wall. That's like a last resort, but it doesn't always have to be the first, first one, right? But we do need people in our life that go, man, you just seem to be getting hung up by something that's just not that big of a deal. And sometimes generational or stage-of-life struggles are some of the most difficult for us to discern and, and to confront because we become consumed and overwhelmed by them in our life. And that's, I believe, what Paul really gets into the details of that we'll talk about next week. And not every stage-of-life struggle is sin, friends. Not, I'm not saying that, but none of them are absent of our sin. And many of them are a direct result of our propensities towards sin or or from our sinful thinking or even from our sinful actions. And we need people who will rebuke us when we get hung up in our stage of life sin. And, And people outside your life stage, they often serve as a rebuke, not because of what they say, but just because of the model that they live. And you see them and you realize, man, I get so hung up by this thing in my life And I realize I need to get over that. Not because it's not real, but because God will lead me through this. And listen, I know that takes time. And I'm not trying to be insensitive by saying stop it or get over it. But that's what needs to happen. And it may take us a long time. And it may be a war internally. But if we remove the people from our life that love us enough to graciously tell us that, we'll be enslaved to it. Spiritual rebuke confronts our sin to bring Holy Spirit conviction that enables us to repent and to turn to Jesus. The second generation, or the second advantage of multi-generation discipleship is not just rebuke, but listen, hear these words. Somebody that will tell you, forget it. It's okay and it's not that important. Why is it continually harassing you? Why is it continually tempting you? Why is it continually discouraging you? You need someone who will encourage you and whom you can go to and say, can you encourage me? Sometimes we feel so condemned because we need to beg someone to throw us a lifeline, right? Gosh, if I was a better Christian, I would not need a lifeline. I would be a lifeline. That is a lie. And you need somebody in your life that will point that out to you. If you don't have a regular source of verbal encouragement, and I tell you, this breaks my heart, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm bad at We need that. And we need people who will see that in us before we will see it in ourselves. Go, bro, you need to grab hold of what I'm about to tell you. So I can pull you out of the muck and the mire that you've got yourself stuck in. That's a biblical practice in discipleship. An encouragement for And in that encouragement, they direct you to look beyond the surface of what's going on to get to the root of your lie that you're believing, to the root of the deception that you're practicing or to the root of the sin that you can't get out of. You see, spiritual encouragement points to Jesus to show us how He is our eternal and our abiding joy. He is our source of encouragement. We're just a conduit through which his courage flows. To bring us up out of the slavery and the entanglement of sin so that we can have and live in the joy and the peace and the love that he gives. There's a third advantage that I want to briefly share with you. How are you looking to Jesus to walk in obedience What is he telling you? You see, this third advantage always accompanies one or two. It never should be, uh, one or two should never be offered with the third. Because what the third does is it takes you where you are. You came in today, you were wondering if God cared anything about how he should relate to you or anything about your life. And the first two, the rebuke and the encouragement say God absolutely cares about where you are in life. But he loves you too much to leave you there. And this third one says, what is Jesus doing in your heart and in your life? What has Jesus said? What is he telling you? How is he leading you? Have you looked out of your situation? Have you looked outside of the walls that your life has built? And have you looked up to the mountain from which your help will come? The Lord Jesus Christ... Who could use a person like that in their life today? You don't have to raise your hands. I raised them for you. Discipleship has not occurred until we turn our eyes, until we turn our mind, until we turn our heart to Jesus for forgiveness, for cleansing, and faith for full obedience that brings eternal abiding Joy, And you know what? That doesn't happen in an instant or in a moment. So just keep cultivating the gospel until it comes. Keep kneading the dough until it is ready. We need relationships with godly people that are not like us to point us to godliness. People outside our stage of life that provide beneficial perspective on life and on godliness. You see, discipleship spans across generations to focus spiritual growth at every stage no matter The age. I'm telling you, the youngest and the oldest teach me the same lesson that I often miss the joy of Jesus because I let things steal it and even give it away freely at times. They both teach me this. I'm going to tell you why. A friend came to my house a few nights ago and brought their young children. They just returned from a birthday party and their, their daughter was carrying a balloon. And so she, she came back to our patio, and just as she got to the patio, the balloon slipped through her fingers, and she watched it as it just sailed away, and there was nothing any of us could do as it sailed away. And there was this frozen-in-time moment lasted, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. And she went, balloon! Balloon! <sighs> I mean, she just lost it. And we laughed politely, but we finally got her calmed down. It took several minutes, what seemed like 10 or 12 years. We finally got her calmed down and, you know, redirect their attention. Redirect, redirect, you know, find something fun. Hurry, quick, get something now and put it in front of and, and redirect. But, but about 10 minutes later, she walks over and she goes, <laughs> It was just letting it, I mean, it it just balloon ruled the night. That happened about four times over the next 30 minutes. We would be fine, everything was good, and all of a sudden she would look up, stop, and go, Balloon! You know, just like the crushing weight of losing the balloon. And as I watched her, I realized she just really missed her joy. And I recognized how sometimes I let life so enclose on me that I forget where my real joy is found. What she taught me in that moment, actually not in that moment, thinking back on that moment, was how much I really need to long for my joy Stop replacing it with things that provide temporary satisfaction. Stop filling my life so I forget. But rather go back to the source of my joy. And long for it. And want it. And let it rule my life until it has filled my life. young girl taught me that. The older generation laughs in love because they've learned how it's just not worth getting caught up and letting your joy get away. The younger stare at you and wonder, what's wrong with you? Because they don't understand, but they also don't care because they just want their joy. You see, discipleship spans generations. And that means that we pursue as many people as possible of all ages to surround us, that remind us not to let our joy get away, but to continue to pursue and to grow in the one who is our joy, Jesus. Sound doctrine teaches and reminds us that Jesus is our joy and discipleship in the community of the church Presses us towards our joy. And we need that, friends. Let me ask the worship team to return. The main point I want to make for us today we are a church that stands in constant threat of being sidetracked from our joy. Because we can have too narrow a vision of how God wants to bring it to us. And is that only true of us? No, it's true of all. But I'm just concerned about us here right now. Can I ask you a question as we, as we press more and more into this today? Are you longing for your joy because of the discipleship of our church or are you standing at arm's length wondering if it can be of any benefit for you I don't think our church will make the ultimate difference in your life because we are great people and I do genuinely believe we have many great people in this church that's not what's going to make a difference in your life the only difference that will be made in your life is if through these people great, good, and gosh awful that would be me if they point you more to Jesus who is your joy rooting you in his word anchoring you deeper and deeper in who he is but raising so that you could grow up in Him. Discipleship streams in the church. So that we grow as the church in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that true for you? If it's not, I would invite you today to give some time to consider in your own heart where the spirit of God is working and speaking to you maybe about the things that are conflicting you maybe the things that are confusing you or just dividing you and I would encourage you to repent of those things and to press in and some of those things may be that which you feel most discouraged about that which you feel most depressed or down about so you may need a rebuke you may need an encouragement I don't know but in both of those things I do know where you need to turn so we make that invitation for you today just to simply say where is God leading you what is he saying to you and will you say yes to him today he cares deeply about you. he loves you he wants to draw you near let me pray for us and then we'll respond to him Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. God, we take your goodness and your grace and we make it something that we think we want and need more, and then we end up throwing it to the side because we twisted it from what you intended it to be. And God, as we talk about discipleship and the purpose of sound doctrine in the church and How you want to encourage us, but also to transform us more and more. God, help us not to just cast you aside. To mitigate Christianity to be what we want it to be, but rather to lay down our own understandings and our own things that we might take up what you have for us. That we would embrace a life of entering more and more into your son, Jesus Christ. And into the people that He's brought into our life. To know the joy and the peace and the love that only He gives and that only He brings. Friends, if you're here today and you know you need that, we we would love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you. We'd love to minister to you in that way. There'd be an elder here at the front to do just that. But most of all, let's respond to the Lord in song. Let's respond and just tell the Spirit, Spirit, speak to me and lead me. And help me in every way as I say yes to you.